Hello everyone. Before we start today's podcast, some exciting news for you. You can experience the Inside Politics podcast live in Dublin on May 16th when Hugh Linehan, Jennifer Bray and I will be joined by Cliff Young of Ipsos, one of America's top pollsters, to talk about the US election, our own local and European elections and much more. It's a breakfast event kicking off at 8am in Trinity College. If you'd like to attend, you can get tickets at irishtimes.com forward slash events. That's irishtimes.com forward slash events. I hope we see lots of you there. It's Wednesday, June the 19th, and you're very welcome to the Inside Politics podcast from the Irish Times. I'm Hugh Linehan. Later on, we're going to be discussing the government's two-track approach to this year's budget in the light of continuing Brexit uncertainty, along with the continuing aftershocks of last month's elections and the promise to pay the full sum of damages to terminally ill cancer patient Ruth Morrissey, regardless of the outcome of the government's appeal against her case. But first, the big news this week was the announcement of an ambitious and radical plan to address the climate crisis, with eye-catching commitments to have more than a million electric cars in Irish roads within a decade and to retrofit hundreds of thousands of homes across the country. How realistic are those plans and do they stand up to scrutiny? Fia Kelly and Harry McGee from our political staff are in the studio. Also on the line is Sive O'Neill who lectures in environmental politics and green political theory in UCD. But first Harry you were at the big launch on Monday. I, I was and I think the thing that the first thing that people noticed was the bus. Uh, they, most of the cabinet arrived by bus uh, and I think there was a bit of virtue signalling uh, involved. I think the optics played uh, a big uh, part. It was a hybrid bus. It was a hybrid bus, one of three that's been acquired by Dublin Bus, but uh, sadly they've also uh, acquired 200 uh, diesel buses uh, which will be high emitters and which will be here for the next 10 or 15 years so they won't do anything really uh, to decrease our uh, emissions. Um, There was a famous incident uh, when Bertie Ahern was Taoiseach. Uh, The government had a cabinet meeting down the country and the optics of it were disastrous because you saw uh, 12 uh, long, sleek limousines arrive one by one into the particular venue. And Irish people don't like that kind of Russian mafia, uh, Kim Kardashian, Kanye West type vibe. Uh, well, they don't like it anymore. Government. They loved it in 2006. They, they probably did. But by that time, I think they, the tide uh, had turned. They, they, it was a bit of a stunt because most of the ministers, they actually left by their own car. And you kind of wonder when was the last time any minister uh, in that government has jumped onto a bus yeah, just, or indeed I mean, travelled just, by bicycle. Just for, for, the, for those of our listeners who don't know the geography of Dublin, the, the event took place in Grange Gorman. They could have hopped on the Lewis and got the Lewis straight back from whence they came. Uh, in, indeed they could. Now, in fairness to Pascal Donoghue, he does tend to walk to work some morning, so uh, I, I will give him brownie points for that. But for the rest, I think they, they do still love their uh, diesel uh, guzzling cars and none of them have hybrids. But that's an aside point. Uh, the action plan... Um, it was the third action plan that's been launched by Richard Bruton. He launched one for jobs when he was Minister for Enterprise and Jobs. He launched one when he was Minister for Education and this is the third and he loves action plans and they have been a particularly effective tool for him. And you can see why because he, he sets out everything he's going to do in a particular action. There are 183 and uh, sometimes when you're talking about policies uh, and talking about abstractions, especially when talking for periods of 10, 20 and 30 years, uh, you can get lost in the language a little bit and it's very hard 
to reconcile the long-term aim with the practical steps that will get you towards that particular goal. And what the action plans have done quite effectively, quite effectively is that they have uh, shown how that roadmap uh, will uh, be drawn. And of course, there's going to be fudges. I think there are uh, 20, there are 63 references uh, to items being considered. So a, a lot of the actual plans haven't been decided yet, haven't really even been discussed yet. But at least uh, we have a sense of what the government is going to do and how it's going to go about the business. And the two things that will um, affect householders in particular is uh, the way they travel and the way, way they live. So uh, the, the, the big play for the government in terms of transport is this wholesale conversion to electric vehicles within a period of a decade. We have hardly 35, 40,000 EVs on the road at present. Uh, by 2030, they're, they're saying that we will have almost a million uh, electric vehicles on the road. And the second thing is uh, another very effective measure, but a very difficult one to achieve, and that's to retrofit half a million Irish homes and bring the insulation within them up to a BER standard of B2, which is a very high standard. And to do that, uh, they're going to have to um, uh, take some radical uh, measures like banning uh, oil burners, uh, boil, uh, oil boilers, also gas boilers uh, by, uh, 22, by 2022 and 2025, respectively, and replacing them with heat pumps. Now, the difficulty with heat pumps is that... Uh, they only work effectively if a house is really well insulated and also has very good ventilation. And most Irish houses don't have that. So that's going to be a very costly item. So they have looked at a Dutch model where they have done these projects by clusters or by groups uh, where they go into a particular area. They do all the houses and apartments in a particular area. Uh, it gives them uh, it gives them economy of scale. It, uh, they also give incentives to the builders to go in and do it quickly. So in the Dutch model, they they they, they averaged about three days per retrofit, which is extraordinary. And they got uh, uh, many, many uh, thousands uh, done. And that model has been adopted elsewhere in France and in Britain. And it looks like the government uh, will adopt it here. And the the thing that that would be uh, good about it, if it is adopted, is that it will uh, help the building industry acquire the skills because the skills there are kind of absent at the moment. So they will need to acquire those skills over time. Okay, I mean, you've covered a huge amount there already and there are even huger pictures uh, to cite. Maybe you could just give us an overview from your perspective as somebody who's been looking in depth at these issues, you know, for, for many years. Is is this, I mean, from listening to what Harry says there, this sounds like a, a, a potentially a landmark moment. What do you make of it? Well, it certainly is a landmark report. Um, I'm actually in Brussels at the moment and I met some business people, some very senior business people last night in Brussels. And one of them asked, and I thought it was a brilliant question. He asked me, is this just a PowerPoint presentation or is there real substance to this policy change? And it's a very good question. So parts of this report, I think, fall into the category of a PowerPoint presentation and other parts of it do have more substance. Um, But I just want to go back a little bit to some of the underlying uh, assumptions in the report and the way they went about calculating the emission reduction potential. So the the big step change really is that unlike previous plans, the emission reduction potential of different options were really measured properly. Uh, So they commissioned uh, what's called a marginal abatement cost curve from a company called McKinsey, who are kind of renowned for this type of work. And the uh, idea behind the MAC curve is that it tells you what the least cost option is to achieving emission reductions. Now, all of that assumes that you have enough information about what the cost of the different options are. 
And the assumption is, of course, that the cheapest option is the best option. Um, but unfortunately, there are some assumptions there. So sometimes the cheapest options can lead to lock-in. If the MAC curve tells you that it's not worth your while investing in public transport until 2028 or something like that, or closing money point to 2025 as opposed to tomorrow, um, then that tends to drive the policy decisions. And unfortunately, that we can see evidence of that in this report. So the, the MAC curve assumes that really very little has to change except technology. So instead of a paradigm shift, you have techno shift. So that uh, speaks to what Harry was explaining there about the assumption that you can simply replace very much the internal combustion engine with electric vehicles and drive a lot of the emission reductions in the transport sector that way. So there's no emphasis at all on shifting you know, uh, the emphasis on car-based transport over to public transport and active modes like cycling and walking, despite huge... Um, pressure from you know the constituencies in Dublin that have clearly demonstrated an appetite for better cycling facilities and um, more active modes huge latent demand for public transport around the country that isn't being captured by the current provision at the moment but the policy does not speak to the kind of shift towards public transport as a way of getting around. And it assumes that the national planning framework will be strong enough in its delivery to, uh, I suppose, make the create the economic incentive for public transport. But that is a huge assumption to make. It's never worked before in Ireland. We have a really dreadful legacy of poor planning and sprawl all over the country and not just in Dublin and the Dublin region. And I'm just very concerned that the plan is over optimistic in making these assumptions about what the least cost option is and um, what will actually be required to uh, drive emission reductions in the long term. The other thing I would say about it is that the plan, it, it doesn't really say it very explicitly, but it assumes that the 2030 uh, effort sharing regulation targets that are you know, binding in EU law are really what Ireland has to achieve. And we know that those targets are not consistent with the commitments Ireland has made in the Paris Agreement. They're not consistent with the latest climate science, which is telling us that we need emission reductions of about 45% by 2030. Um, in order to keep global warming before uh, below 1.5 degrees. So the assumptions that are there in the report are that we're only looking at a kind of a maximum emission reduction of 20%, and we are looking for the least cost, cheapest approach to doing that, which is just shifting to renewable energy, electricity, and electrification of heating and transport. I would agree with Harry that I think the the measures in the trans in the buildings and you know retrofitting chapter are more thought out and uh, more consistent with what is going to work in practice and what has worked in other countries. The transport chapter is very weak and the agricultural chapter is really just a business as usual. There is some talk in the agricultural community that that what's actually going to happen in practice is that the beach sector is going to be wound down to, if you like, pr protect the emissions that are coming from the dairy sector. And that isn't made explicit in the report. The Joint Eroptus Committee was very clear in calling for a diversification and more local food production, diversification to other types of crops and farming, more agroforestry and measures that would improve biodiversity alongside uh, sequestration, as in using, you know, restoring wetlands and using forestry and hedgerows to capture carbon. 
Uh, but that uh, is not very well spelt out in the report and the measures in relation to hedgerows are pathetic really, to be honest, even though there's huge potential there for developing programmes in that area. Um, Fia, can I ask you, I'm interested in Desive there, just on the, to come back to the, the transport point for a moment. I mean, she describes a sort of a, an economic paradigm which is being applied here, a McKinsey analysis, a Mac curve, which perhaps isn't, you know, isn't looking for the kind of the more profound changes, social changes, which um, which might be required. But it seems to me the other part of that, and I think I've referred to it too, is the fact that we have a terrible record of spatial planning in this country. We have a terrible record of, you know, addressing, you know, decent public transport provision in urban areas and you know, we have an example of that close to hand at the moment or the bus, the bus connects um, project seems to be running into the sand you know as, as we speak so the sort of political pressures in Ireland um, seem to be inimical to anything you know the more profound action which is being suggested there or, yeah, or might be necessary I, I think people were looking to the transport section of this plan to see if there was a huge shift away uh, from the car be it an EV car or be it a petrol or diesel powered car to get people into cycling and improve public transport that's not necessarily there because the government is, is, has designed it in a way to complement its project order 2040 plan and we are quite familiar with the infrastructure projects and that so the main emphasis of the transport plan is to get people out of their cars into EV cars and the targets are quite ambitious and as Michael McAleer points out in our paper today might be unrealistic but any there is a history in this country of when there seems to be a move towards a step change in how people manage public transport, that there is local resistance and generally the political class will buckle once the local resistance gains ahead of steam. And as we can see, the Bus Connects plan, which was designed to build fast corridors into the city centre and around the city for a bus network. And also, let's not forget, to couple that with a significant increase in cycle lanes in and out of the city to increase capacity for uh, bicycle users. Hidden in this plan is a significant slowdown in the implementation of that project. It talks about rolling out bus connects in phases, whereas if you're implementing a new network, you kind of would have to do it in one go, really, if you're serious about it. That follows on from huge public pressure in the local elections, in particular around Dublin, from people, first of all, who don't want their gardens taken off them. Second of all, there's a huge campaign around trees in various areas of the city that don't want trees cut down. But I think the plan gave a quite significant hint that it was going to be rolled back and that's been confirmed by the NTA. So it just shows that when the political system is confronted with things it must do, it will often wilt in the face of public pressure. Harry, is it politically the case, pragmatically speaking, that it's much easier to announce a, a very grand plan to uh, invest in people's private property, to make their private property more valuable, to pour a lot of money into uh, the building industry, essentially, to, to carry out that retrofitting? Much easier to commit to that than to commit to things which um, might affect people's day-to-day lives as they're used to living them right now in relation to the way they get around the place. Yes, I think so. But I mean, they're, 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 it's not it's not all the, the onus of responsibility doesn't fall on any one particular agency it doesn't fall on government there's also an individual responsibility that will have to be people will have to address that as years uh, go on and will have to measure uh, their private uh, space uh, with the with the with the public good or the communal good I think Bus Connects is a very good example uh, of that it's still included in the plan but as we know from real politic outside uh, that that plan is going to take a much longer time to implement and there are going to be pockets of resistance all, all over Dublin. And then, as I was saying, uh, if you look at the other, um, uh, the, 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 the EV, the, 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 it, the government has gone all in on EVs mm. 
and there has been a the the chapters on modal shifts such as cycling, walking, uh, public transport are really disappointing uh, by uh, comparison. Cycling two hundred kilometres of cycling networks, but all of that will be associated with bus connects. So you can you can see that that's not going to happen um, any time. Uh, why, why are they so bad on this? I think we are a bit of a kind of a mini America. I mean, I always think of Ireland as America. We have the kind of the affluent east, the, the Midlands, and then the kind of the West Coast. But it's a very car dependent society. And there's a very powerful car lobby. And I think that people find it very difficult to, to it's almost like property ownership. Car ownership, car use and property ownership are very similar. Act. There was a Vox Pop that one of the uh, TV stations did during the week uh, asking uh, car owners would they go to EVs and none of them said that. They, they don't mind paying extra for diesel. They don't mind having cars. They, they, the car is, is a personal space and there's a mindset there uh, that will have to be changed. But uh, again, um, I, I think you're, you're right. I think the, the, the two areas um, in which um, there seems to be most in terms of what's going to happen uh, transport and buildings uh, relate to, to property that's owned by people. Uh, Saif was referring to agriculture. The agriculture mm. section is really disappointing. It's very I mean, poor. there's no reference at all uh, to a reduction in the national uh, herd. There are some references to the change in cap, uh, which will, which will uh, favour uh, sustainability. And there's also uh, talk uh, about um, increasing the economic breeding index and the beef gen- genome product, uh, which will essentially you know, reduce the number of cattle in, in the, in the uh, beef industry. Uh, Sive was referring to the marginal abatement cost, the MAC uh, 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 study that was done by McKinsey. And the one that they have steered away from because McKinsey told them it was going to be very costly was converting methane, uh, which is uh, the byproduct of, of animals, uh, into heat. And McKinsey are telling them that that would be too costly. Uh, so that hasn't, they haven't gone near that. In terms of afforestation, uh, they're planning to to plant 8,000 hectares a year for five years. For the next five years, that's 40,000 hectares. But that's against the background of, of uh, uh, a decrease in afforestation in Ireland over the past 10 years and a huge reluctance within the farming community to go anywhere near uh, afforestation. So all we get in the actual report is a very, very uh, general aspiration, but with no explanation as to how they're going to do this. And they're not going to get uh, far, uh, farmers uh, to, to agree uh, to plant 8,000 hectares a year at present because there's no incentive and there's no, the mindset isn't there either. And it's not just afforestation on marginal land up mountains in Connemara or in South Wicklow. Uh, afforestation has to happen everywhere and it has to happen on what would be considered as... as high quality pasture. As, as high quality pasture uh, as well. And that is something that people will have to, uh, a hurdle that people will have to overcome if our mindset is to be uh, changed uh, to, to confront the enormous challenge that we have uh, to meet very exacting targets if, we, if, if, if we're going to agree with Paris over the next 10 years. Now, Saif, this is a 10-year or more plan uh, being issued by a government which has less than 12 months uh, to live. Uh, there's definitely going to be a general election in the next in the next year or so. So in a way, um, it's, it, it's a blueprint which may be subject to a significant amendment, you know, over the next two to three, four, five years. Are there, within accepting that, are there good things within it? I mean, we've been quite critical of it here. Is there anything that you see that's, that's good in it? Yes, and I'm glad you've given me the opportunity to say that, actually, because the very first chapter or the section on governance is very good. And it um, pretty much takes the recommendations of the Joint Raptors Committee, Lock, Stock and Barrel, 
um, with one proviso. There's a bit of ambiguity about the government's commitment to a net zero target for 2050, but the proposals they have for um, it, uh, amending the climate law that was uh, uh, set down in 2015 um, are very good. It will make the adoption of carbon budgets a legal requirement and it will require the government to set a decarbonisation target for each sector and that these budgets will then be adopted by the Doyle by motion and that the climate action plan will be updated annually. But the main thing is that it will have to be consistent with the 2030 and 2050 target. So you can't just pluck your favourite carbon budget out of the sky and say, well, that's what we're prepared to do. So even though all of the other chapters, especially the, the examples that Harry was describing there, very much follow business as usual. And when I say that, it's that these are old policies. There's nothing really new about any of that uh, reference to beef genomics or, or forestry. These are existing targets. So there's no new measures proposed there at all. But the climate legislation, if it's if it's amended the way the government is proposing, will require new policies because there is no way we will achieve the targeted reductions unless we use the budgeting approach to make make policy choices about where the emission reduction potential is and to drive those down. The other thing is that, and Hildegard Nocton has been uh, uh, saying this over the past week as well, that. The, the, there will be a, a role for the Joint Oireachtas Committee on Climate Action. It will have a sort of a, a reporting and accountability role pretty much like the Public Accounts Committee. And that's very important because our experience to date over the past few years is that ministers uh, beyond the Minister for Communications and Climate Action have not been reporting adequately under the existing legal framework. They have not been reporting and uh, held accountable for their department's actions. So the governance piece that, that is in this report is, is quite good and it will drive policy change in the future. But one would have to say quite cynically, well, maybe they're just <laughs> deferring all the difficult decisions to the next government, essentially, that they'll put in the governance framework now and then require the future government to make the difficult choices. Yeah, it's kind of fake. There's a sense of St. Augustine politics about this, isn't there? You know, make me pure, Lord, but, you know, but not quite yet. And I wonder particularly about, about the Taoiseach and kind of comments that he's made over the last few weeks, you know, well, after the, the Greens' successes in the in the recent elections, he sort of said, well, there you are, we'll have to see about, you know, responding to that in some way. But there was a suggestion that he wasn't totally that he wasn't totally convinced that when these hard measures came into play that that the electorate would go with it. I think he mentioned the gilets jaunes in France as an example of how these things can go terribly wrong, you know, for for a government. And then in the last week, I was interested that he's used the word nudge as a uh, to describe how people might be incentivized to do certain things or perhaps disincentivized to do others. That's a kind of a politics which was popular in the Obama administration with David Cameron in the in the United Kingdom a few. years years ago, a very famous book, uh, one of the authors, Cass Sunstein, was on this podcast a few years ago, about a certain way of gently altering people's behaviour by, by, I suppose, psychological manipulation. Mm. But that sounds a long, long way away from the kind of radical transformation which Sive is describing there. Yeah, let's take a couple of obvious examples where it would really hit people in, the, in their pocket if you're trying to change the way they behave. So we know that they're going to increase uh, carbon tax in the budget. Um, They've already pretty much well flagged that. But in the transport sector uh, and in the sector on kind of policies that cross over a number of departments, it talks about other taxation measures that may be used, such as equalising petrol and diesel, such as reforming the VRT and the motor tax system. Um, And then there's uh, policies, proposals to bring in a scrappage scheme to really accelerate the take of EV cars. 
they are not going to happen within the next year and a half because the Department of Finance won't allow it because the administrative burden, first of all, on the department to make so many tax changes in a year is significant. But second of all, they're not going to anger people, as you say, before an election by hitting them with a carbon tax, a rise in diesel because they're going to equalise the excise with petrol, and then to bring in a substantial cost to the exchequer, which a scrappage scheme would, would, would introduce... Those are things huge. that are, you look at Michael yeah. McAleer's article and you look at the it, amount it, of the sums it, of money. It's huge, and that is not going to happen anytime soon. So the most immediate thing we're going to see is an increase in the carbon tax. And if you're talking about amending people's behaviour to such an extent that you're going to get them into a million EV cars by 2030, that is not the, the, the pace at which you should be proceeding. You should be going much quicker and much faster. Harry, I mean, I, I mean, Michael's article is well worth reading. I'd recommend it to our readers. And I read that, and I come away with the conclusion that this this target as framed in this document launched this week, is I call bullshit on it. Uh, I think it's bullshit. I don't think it's unachievable. I don't think it's achievable based on based on Michael's analysis. And if it is bullshit, it does, um, you know, it undermines the one sense of the bona fides of the whole the whole project. Yeah. Now, I'm, I, how could I even begin to question Michael, who's an expert in this area? I'm just a a, a, a one of the uh, generalist spoofers in the politics department. But having looked at it, I actually think that. Um, that in a strange way, the EV target is achievable. If you look at the evidence so far, if you look at the the price of batteries, over the past seven years, they have reduced in price by 79% and they are uh, projected to fall by a further 65% between now and 2030. And they reckon by the the year 2023 or 2024 uh, that uh, EVs uh, will come, uh, will, will, in terms of price, will be comparable with petrol and diesel cars. Already we're seeing moves in the market where, I mean, the big, th- the big two things for electric vehicles are uh, the price, which has been very high, and secondly is range anxiety. Uh, a lot of the cars that have come up to now have only a range of 150 to 200 kilometres, and anybody who's thinking of going to the west or going on holidays or using the car on the road uh, would have qualms about using that because it would add a couple of extra hours uh, to, to uh, the journey. Uh, but there's a Hyundai Kona, which is out at the moment, which has a range of 440 kilometres and which retails at €39,000, which is sort of very expensive. But compared to the Teslas and the Jaguars and the Mercedes and the other high-end things, it's very cheap. But should we, and I mean, taking take on, take on board your point about the Americanization of Ireland and, and, and all that kind of stuff, should we be looking for, I've got a big lump of metal sitting outside my house that I use two or three times a week. Mm. Should, should we not be looking for a situation where you don't need that, you know, along with electric cars comes driverless vehicles, comes yeah. car sharing, comes, comes, comes better public transport, comes cycling, comes all those things. Is that not, you know, all of those components should have been included in the plan and they weren't. I think car sharing, um, um, the, the potential for car sharing in rural Ireland in particular, um, um, I'm, I'm very surprised that, that in, in, in rural transport, for example, people think about irregular buses and don't think about other modes. Or there are hackneys, but there are, there's no system that allows car sharing in rural Ireland. And it could be with technology, as we have seen in cities, it could easily be uh, achieved. And all of these will have to have to be looked at. I'm just thinking in terms of culture, it will take time. And it'll be something that will happen incrementally and won't, won't happen but the, o- o- overnight. Sorry, but I, the, the other thing is, just in relation to EVs, I think the people who are buying cars over the next couple of years, you know, when, when they know... That, that petrol and diesel are being phased out and taxes are going to rise, are going to start making kind of hard choices about what kind of car they're going to use. So I think that you will see a very big 
acceleration in the take-up of EVs. I don't know if 930,000 is a realistic target, but I think that within the next decade, we will be very well on the way to that. Saif, I think one of the things, listening to Harry there, and come back to the Gilets Jaunes again, because I was talking about them a bit at the weekend with with, with some people, there were were a specific part of the population in France who were badly affected by the the carbon tax uh, measures introduced by Macron uh, over a year ago. And they were people who lived in exurban, dispersed locations, who were neither actually on social welfare nor very wealthy. They were kind of lower middle class. They didn't have a lot of disposable income. They were very reliant on the internal combustion engine to get around. And they were hit really hard by this. And you could see there being exactly the same kind of people, some of them Barry's just described there, being hit in exactly the same way. Um, Yeah, absolutely. But it's always important to remember that that particular implementation of carbon tax increase in France was wholly inequitable. And, you know, it, 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 it doesn't have to be like that. So the government basically raised carbon taxes, raised car, uh, prices on fuel uh, without any compensation measures at all. Um, the tax just went straight into the government exchequer and there was no effort to alleviate the burden on the people who would, who would really not have any options in relation to public transport and so on. So it was a very inequitable distribution. Now, whatever you do about taxes, uh, whenever you levy a tax or increase a tax or change what you tax, um, there is always going to be a, a distributive uh, impact. And the important thing is that the I think the government has been wised up around that, and there seems to be a consensus um, that, first of all, any increase in carbon tax will be revenue neutral, that the revenue will be returned to people in one way or another, and there are different ways of doing it. You can do it through the tax system, through the welfare system. You can use it to invest in alleviating fuel poverty. You can do it as a direct cash transfer, like the Green Party proposes, a fee and dividend approach. So there are different ways of doing it, and the Department of Finance are in the middle of a consultation exercise at the moment. And it will be very interesting to see how Ireland deals with this, because um, I think there is a, a political sensitivity there that the government is is aware of. And given that we have a very centre-right government and they want to increase taxes, um, I think they're uh, going to be uh, very concerned to do it in a way that will not generate the kind of opposition that we saw with the water charges. But I just wanted to come back to one point, if I might, around the transport uh, thing, because it really is um, a place where we see the kind of mindset of the Fine Gael approach, which is very much to take the business as usual scenario and just replace the technology. Now, it may well be that we can just make that shift um, because we're technology takers in Ireland. We're not manufacturing cars. We have no particular loyalty to any car manufacturing industry. So we may just be able to kind of adopt this new technology. But underlying it, there's an assumption of strong economic growth and consumer demand, and that people will be able to afford these new vehicles or to replace a car in the first place requires some uh, significant uh, income. Um, But at the mean, a lot of the solutions to our emissions problem, which is what we're supposed to be looking at, are really under our noses. So for example, we haven't implemented safe routes to school. Uh, Where I live in Kilkenny, We have been promised a bus service for the last three years. It is going to be a very simple operation with just two routes that meet in the middle of the town. And it has taken three years to actually deliver this very simple public transport measure. So we cannot be serious about uh, reducing emissions when people in towns and villages that are connected and are easily connectable by either shared mobility services in the way that uh, Harry was describing or with very simple public transport services that are kind of uncomplicated and inexpensive, 
we're not even doing the obvious things. We're not making it safe for our children to walk or cycle to school. And at the moment, a huge part of the congestion that many towns and cities in Ireland are experiencing is driven by the fact that parents are driving their children to school because it is simply not safe for them to walk or cycle. So um, our, our planning policies and our emphasis when we're even managing traffic, this is where local authorities come in, they need to be directed to make these routes available so that it's possible because you can't expect people to make a modal shift if the option is not there or it's not safe. Just making the point that a lot of the options are much cheaper than the MAC curve assumes. So the MAC approach doesn't tell you about the co-benefits in terms of active travel and health and air quality of shifting people out of cars altogether and onto bicycles and walking in public transport. Yeah, just in relation to that, Vic, I'm going to ask a question which um, our listeners sometimes say we should we should address more, but it does sometimes come up in here, which is the question of the ideology of the of, of the current government. And Saif kind of referred to it there. If we're going to address this climate crisis in the way that Saif and many other people think we should, it's going to require a massive level of state intervention. Uh, new taxes, new kinds of expenditure, intervening in various kinds of industries, shutting down other kinds of industries. And Leo Varadkar, there was an interesting piece uh, on irishtimes.com a few days ago about his history of writing letters to the Irish Times, going way back, I think, to the 1990s when he was only a young fella. He does have an ideological hinterland, and that is generally a centre-right, um, low-tax, low-expenditure kind of approach to things. And obviously that's modulated over the years as he's come up against the reality of, of the Irish political yeah, landscape. Yeah, the, the great line we've, we've said in here before, the Labour Party claimed credit for turning into a social democrat when he was in the Department of Health because he started asking for money over and above what was already promised to him. Um, that is, I suppose, the, the way the Fine Gael views the world. Like if you look at what we spoke about there, which was the more meaty element of the plan, which is the building and construction element of it, a lot of it is, is geared at enabling the market to do what needs to be done. So putting in place tra- better training schemes for private construction companies, tradesmen to skill themselves up to retrofit homes, to getting people, private operators in to do this kind of geographically concentrated retrofitting programs that ha- Harry is talking about. But they would say that that is the way that they think is correct to do so, that that is the way to uh, achieve efficiencies, to get it done correctly. It is a certain view of the world. It's one that is not uncommon in Leinster House. Uh, but if that is a view of the world that people don't agree with, I'm assuming they can vote for other parties if they want to. Absolutely, that's the way it works. We'll leave it there, but we're going to discuss some other issues facing the government after this. You're listening to the Irish Times. Now, Fiuk, I was reading your always excellent political digest uh, this morning and you were talking about other items on the government's entry and chief amongst them, of course, is the summer statement. Always, to my mind, the most boring news story oh, of the indeed, summer. Oh, yes. um, And that'll, that'll be imminent and that obviously sets the scene for the budget. And there's going to be a kind of a binary approach to this. Um, there has to be a two-track approach. There's a Brexit, no Brexit. Yeah, what happens during the summer statement is that the government outlines the level of resources it thinks it will have to spend in, this, in the October budget. So they'll say we have X billion, although in recent years you've seen there's a pattern of finding a couple of hundred million here or there. Down the back of the sofa. Down the back of the sofa, which always happens. But what they're doing this year, rather than saying this is what we, we believe, they're going to outline two scenarios. One, if there is an orderly Brexit this year, they will say we believe we have these amount of resources to spend. And then they'll say, if there is a no-deal Brexit on October 31st, this is what we believe we will have to spend. So it's I I don't anticipate that they will say they're going to reduce expenditure or make cuts. What they will say is 
in a no-deal scenario, we don't think we're going to spend as much as we previously thought we were. Um, it's out of necessity, I would imagine, and all the indications are to now that they're going to go for the no-deal option because you should think about the calendar. They will have to make a decision by September, start of September, on which option they're going to go for because the, the system has to gear up and prepare one budget. There's not really the capacity to prepare two. The teacher just said that at the weekend in his interview on the Brendan O'Connor show that they'll have to make a call by September. But by September, we won't really have a firm idea where we are at Brexit. Uh, we anticipate the Tory leadership com- uh, competition will be finished in July. Europe goes on holidays for August. By September, Boris Johnson will just be getting his, if it is to be him, getting his feet under the table and will be over making requests in Brussels. The budget takes place on October the 8th. There is a European Council meeting this week. There is no European Council meeting until October the 18th and 19th, I think. So that is the first opportunity that, that the new Prime Minister in Britain will get to speak to early European leaders. So therefore, the government will have no pro- option, probably, other than to go for this tighter budgetary package. But there's also a bit of political footwork at play here. They are extremely sore about the hammering they've taken on their record of economic management and fiscal competence in recent weeks. And there is an element that they see this as a way of, you know, boxing Fianna Fáil into a tight budget because it's really kind of stuck in their throat having Fianna Fáil accuse them of losing the run of themselves when it comes to expenditure. And they believe that since... Well, one element of this calculation, it's not the primary one, is that Michal Martin's tied the government's existence to Brexit. So no matter how tightly they squeeze the pips, he can't really bring the thing down because he's agreed that Brexit is such a threat that this government needs to stay in place. Do you agree with that political analysis, Harry? It's interesting in an election year that a hair shirt budget is seen as the... uh seen as the best option. Well, how could I not agree with uh, political analysis from such an esteemed colleague as Fiuk? <laughs> um, That's what makes this podcast so exciting. It does, yeah. We have you see what he says after. Uh, unanimity. I think, I think Fiuk is, is, is correct. A, a, a good illustration of that was Leaders' Questions yesterday when Michal Martin brought up the issue of, of, uh, uh, of pay, defence pay, I think. And Leo um, Varadkar absolutely uh, hammered into him and he said that Michal Martin has been criticising the government consistently uh, for its lack of fiscal prudence. While every week he comes with the, with the begging bowl uh, looking for more money for a particular measure. And he essentially accused Michal Martin of political hypocrisy. Uh, of running with it's the about hair the and hypocrisy of every opposition, but well, it's just made course, slightly more complicated of, by the fact that this opposition of, maintains of, the government. Of course it is. I mean, you can predict what the opposition, uh, you can, the template for the opposition question has been written in the all for 40 years, as is the one for uh, the government uh, response to it. But I mean, they, they are uh, two uh, parties who are yoked uh, together and they will have to agree a budget together. And um, I, I think that um, Fine Gael will, will try to tie Fianna Fáil down uh, to, to, to the, as Fiuk said, the, the tightest uh, possible budget. I think the other thing that's interesting now is that if Boris Johnson is indeed the new British Prime Minister and if he does go to Brussels towards the um, end of October, is he going to make good on his promise to leave on October the 31st uh, deal uh, or no deal. One of the things that was interesting from the debate last night, the Newsnight debate, is that he changed his language a little bit in relation Surely not. to that. He's a man of that. his word, isn't he? And he, he, instead of saying that they were going to leave on October 31st, he said it was uh, feasibly, uh, uh, very feasibly possible, which is kind of a, a big change, change in language. So it, it means that um, the, the prospect of the uh, negotiations uh, spinning on into Christmas and into uh, 2020 
uh, have, have risen. I, I don't think Britain are going to leave on the 31st of October. I think it'll be 2020 at the earliest. And for Britain all this leaves. talk of, you know, October 31st is the hardest of hard deadlines and Emmanuel Macron has made his position quite strongly known. An element is like the Germany does not want a no deal um, Brexit. And one issue we sometimes underestimate here is that if you are in Germany or Eastern Europe, you are looking at Russia and the aggression shown by Vladimir Putin's regime. And you do not want a period of two to three years of discord and relationships with one of the biggest security powers on the continent. That is a huge factor in the thinking across Europe. We sometimes focus on our own issues, but that's something that's considered. So I would be surprised if there's a request for an extension that it is not granted. And I mean, you in your digest, you say that despite all this, that the majority view in government buildings is that it won't be a no-deal Brexit on the 31st. They, the view, speaking to somebody yesterday, they, they, they don't think no-deal will happen. And they are operating on the basis that, well, they're preparing for no-deal by going through with this budget, that they don't think it'll actually happen. And that will make their political footwork a bit more... Uh, favourable to them as they see it because they will be able to introduce a tight budget without it actually really hitting home the economic shocks of a no deal next year. They don't think it will happen. That said, the Taoiseach will have to meet the new British Prime Minister sometime later this summer or early in the autumn and look them in the eye and and, and make that assessment themselves. But this is still June. We're still in June. These are the best of intentions. Spending in the Department of Health is careering wildly off track again and uh, that may you know, if you're faced with bailing out the Department of Health to the order of a couple of hundred million again, are you going to say no because you want to, you know, make Michal Martin look silly? I don't know. And there is perhaps, you wonder, there are some on the Fine Gael benches who look at what Fianna Fáil are doing and believe that they're playing quite a one-two skillful sucker punch. On the one hand, they're roiling up the government by accusing them of being fiscally uh, reckless. But on the other hand, almost daring them to curtail their spending, knowing full well that these these interest groups are there to be placated. So they have to be careful of that as well. And meanwhile, we shouldn't pay any attention to one single opinion poll, but I'm sure the Taoiseach's avocado toast was spoiled on Sunday morning when he saw the, uh, the behaviour and attitude Sunday Times poll. And that's obviously in the wake and the wash of the, of, of the recent election as well. A, a, an actual surge for the Greens, if those numbers are to be believed, but much more importantly, an actual substantial lead for Fianna Fáil. Yeah, I mean, Fianna Fáil, Fianna Gael did okay in the local election elections, um, but they're they're not gathering momentum and they would really need to gather momentum at this stage if they are going to, to uh, achieve a, a third term uh, in government. I think it was interesting uh, about the Fianna Fáil results in the local election. Fiuk wrote extensively about this at the time of the election, uh, was its, its successful uh, re-emergence as uh, the party of, of blue-collar Dublin. I mean, it did extraordinarily well. Uh, in 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 the local elections in 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 working class constituencies in Dublin, where it once was the dominant player, lost its dominance after 2011, but seems to be re-emerging as the dominant player again. So in constituencies like Dublin Northwest, where Paul McAuliffe did extraordinarily well, if you look at Dublin Southwest, if you look at uh, Dublin Central, these are all. Uh, uh, sorry, Dublin South Central, Dublin Southwest indeed, but they already have a TD there, and Dublin Central. These are all constituencies where Fianna Fáil now has a biddable chance of 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 uh, winning uh, a seat again. So when you look, oh, often at, from Sinn Féin, uh, oh Sinn Féin collapsed. Well, well, I was actually looking to our supplement uh, in terms uh, of the, the local elections, looking at the percentage fall for Sinn Féin uh, in each uh, of the local authority areas. And there were double-digit falls in most of them, with a couple of exceptions. Loud was an exception in Waterford, where David Cullinan 
uh, has a strong organisation were exceptions and they held and Kerry, uh, funny enough, they, they held one, but in the rest uh, they have uh, they have fallen back. And a lot of the places where Sinn Fein gained a seat in the last election, they're now uh, in difficulty. And you had uh, uh, Paul Donnelly in Dublin West, for example, was seen as almost a uh, you know a nap to to take a seat in Dublin West. That's no longer the case. And you find seats like Desi Alice's one in Dublin Northwest suddenly, which looked impermeable, suddenly begin to look a little bit vulnerable. Fine Gael faced the dual threat in Dublin now that where they previously thought they would dominate in Dublin, they now have middle class areas seeing uh, a support in, in the Green vote and they have the Sinn Féin collapse allowing Fianna Fáil back into working class areas. So that is a big concern in government uh, as well. Uh, so I think, though, the poll, while, you know, put shudders down the spines of many of Fine Gael TD on Sunday. Um, I think senior people in both party believe that the true picture is the local elections, that they are pretty much neck and neck and there's not much between the two of them. And then, I suppose, finally, Harry, in the in the folk memory of Fine Gael, the Bridget McColl and the hepatitis C controversy, the impact on Michael Noonan, who was Minister for Health at the time, and then Fine Gael, in, in the most propitious circumstances probably that Fine Gael had ever been in government, losing the, the, the election in 1997. Uh, there, there were some parallels with the, you know, with the, with the ongoing court case with, with Ruth Morrissey uh, and relation to, um, to the cervical uh, scandal. Yeah. And the government have tried to put a lid on that now, have they? Yeah, well, they've, they've essentially said that she will get her award and that they will appeal uh, the judgment in the case um, in just in relation to uh, a key finding by Mr Justice Kevin Cross. And essentially he said that uh, screening programmes, uh, that, that, that when screening is done, uh, the, the, the physician involved must have, quote, absolute confidence uh, before giving the test the all clear so if you were to parse that particular phrase, absolute confidence, you know, in its, in its, in its uh, true meaning, uh, the, 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 the health sector uh, was of the opinion that no test would be passed because absolute confidence would mean 100% certainty. And, and that's these, not the way that these screening tests work? No, they, they, they give an indication and they give a very strong indication, but you can't declare it with absolute confidence. Now, in, in fairness to Mr Justice Kevin Cross, he's come back and said that his judgment wasn't uh, a new judgment, uh, that he just went along with um, uh, precedent and that the, the legal definition of absolute confidence might be slightly different uh, from the ordinary meaning that we would take uh, from the phrase uh, when we're re- reading it. And I think the states were quite right uh, to appeal that so that clarity could be achieved in relation to the meaning of but that phrase. But just to say the state has, or the government has also made clear that the, the damages will re- will be paid or at least the money which was awarded and the damages will not be taken back should, should they win the appeal. Uh, absolutely. And I, I think that's only right and proper. Uh, you have a woman who has a terminal condition and to be kind of a, a pawn in, in a bigger process would be most unhelpful and would would be very detrimental to both her health and both her, her rights as a citizen and to her human rights uh, if any other uh, decision uh, had been taken. The promise uh, not to, to bring these court, these um, cases to court was, was, was very short-sighted by, by Leo Varadkar because... I mean, there were big issues uh, involved and if, if arbitration in some cases just won't be able to uh, arrive at a conclusion uh, that is acceptable to both uh, parties. And in some cases, you're talking about very large sums of money as well. 
and unfortunately, and it's expensive, uh, unfortunately, it's really the courts at the end of the day that are in the best position to decide what the amount should be. So any kind of sub-optimum kind of process as... Uh, uh, as advised by the Taoiseach a year and a half ago, were never really realistic prospects as to uh, being successful. Thanks, Harry. Thanks, Fiak. Thanks also to Sive for joining us earlier. That is it for today's podcast. Thanks to our producer, Jennifer Ryan, and engineer, JJ Vernon. Remember that you can subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts or whatever your preferred podcast provider is. You can also find us at irishtimes.com slash podcast. Your views are always extremely welcome. You can mail me at hlinehan at irishtimes.com or you can usually find me on Twitter. Until the next time, thanks for listening.